Thank you, Caleb. Good to be with you this evening. It's good to see all of you out on this holiday. You know it's a holiday, right? It's a national holiday. It's beginning of dove season. It's also that time of year that I go out. It's that time of year that I will go out twice tomorrow and none of the dove will be scared one bit. They will even land on my shoulder daring me and I still can't hit them, but I enjoy it nonetheless. I'm glad that you're here this evening. Let me ask you a question. Fill in the blank. For to me to live is Christ. Yeah, that's the right answer. What's your answer though? I know what the answer is supposed to be, but what do you fill in the blank with? And this is going to take some serious introspection. This is going to take you being very honest and open with yourself. You don't have to blurt it out, but think to yourself what the answer is in your life. For to me to live is money, career, hunting, fishing, Whatever it may be, we all fill in the blank with something. Everyone, in church, out of church, Christians, non-Christians, believers, non-believers, they all fill in the blank with something. Everyone fills in that blank with something. And you've got to ask yourself, what am I filling that blank in with? It may be that you think the right answer is Christ, but that's not really what you're putting in the blank. It may be that when you're honest with yourself, when you look at your checkbook, when you look at your schedule, when you look at your priorities, it may be that you find that I fill in the blank with something other than Christ. But it's important that you recognize what it is that you fill in the blank with because this is life and death type of stuff. What you fill in the blank with will determine the direction of your life. So obviously, this is very important stuff. Let me ask you another question. What is your philosophy of life? You ever thought about that? When I was applying for teaching jobs, a lot of times I got that question. What is your philosophy of education? Maybe you got similar questions related to your job. You know, what is the philosophy of whatever your job is? What is your philosophy of life? You ever thought about that? How do you approach life? You know, Paul gives us a philosophy of life. It's found in the scripture that we're studying tonight, Philippians chapter 1. Look with me starting in verse 19. Actually, back up, verse 18. Philippians 1, starting in verse 18. This is Paul's life philosophy, okay? And I want you to notice how he fills in the blank. What then? Only that in every way, Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Folks, listen to me. The world is full of winners and losers. 
That sounds kind of harsh. That actually sounds like something that someone in the world would say. Well, life's a competition. It's full of winners and losers. But truthfully, from a spiritual perspective, that's true. There are people who are either winning the spiritual battle that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6, or there are people who are winning that battle. Which one did I say? Losing first? They're either losing or winning that battle, right? And so when it comes down to it, there are two groups of people. There are winners and there are losers. Paul said this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So this world is full of people that are either winning or losing this spiritual battle. That, that, that's really the only two choices. You're either winning or you're losing. And you're going to leave this earth either a winner or a loser. Paul gives us a winning philosophy about life. Did you catch it there? Philippians 1, 18 through 26. I read this and I think, how in the world can Paul rejoice? You think that when you read these words? I mean, he's chained to a Roman guard 24-7. He is sitting in a prison cell. He is facing the threat of his life coming to an end. And yet he is rejoicing. Why? Because Paul is in a win-win situation. You see that in his winning philosophy here. What he talks about in Philippians 1, 18 through 26 is a win-win situation. He would rather go and be at home with the Lord in heaven, but if he is to stay and carry on the work that the Lord has commissioned him to do, that's okay too. It's a win-win situation. You know, that is one of the greatest uh, uh, um, memories that I will have for the rest of my life is when I baptized my dad and afterwards he's going into surgery uh, to, to have his chest cracked open, to have four bypasses. And I tell him, you know, we're praying for you, dad. It's going to be okay. And he says, I'm in a win-win situation now. You know, if I die, I go home to be with the Lord. If I live, I get to stay here and do what I've been doing. It's a win-win situation, right? That's what Paul's pointing out here. This is a winning philosophy. Remaining alive meant doing God's will, which Paul loved, but even more than that, he could go home and be with God, perhaps. Paul's confidence centered around one thing, and it's this. He wasn't afraid to die. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and if you've been to a funeral here at Oldham Lane in the last couple of years, you've heard that verse over and over again because I bring it up at every funeral. And I talk about how Paul is dialoguing with death here. He's having a conversation with death. And I have this image in my mind of the free safety taking the wide receiver's head off and then standing over him after he knocks him down and taunting him and mocking him. That's what Paul's doing. He's taunting death. He's mocking it and saying, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Actually, the Greek, the original language here, is referring to a bee without a stinger. How scary is a bee without a stinger? Not at all, right? And so Paul is mocking death. He's ridiculing death. He's saying, you have no power here. 
death died at the hands of Jesus, right? Can you imagine living with no fear of death? I, I, I can't. I'll be honest with you. I'm not there yet. I want to be someday. Some of you are. I'm not there yet. Now, I, I look forward to heaven when we sing songs about heaven. I, I love singing those songs. But to say that I'm ready to go right now, I don't know that I'm quite there yet with all that confidence. I guess my hand may be forced, right? Or I may leave this world unexpectedly, but right now, if you were to tell me, do you have full confidence in death being better? I, it, it, I'm trying to get there. And I think we all are to some degree, right? You know, I, I don't think it's that so much we're, we're scared of death itself. It's just we've never really gone through that, right? And so to, to say that we are firmly confident in death, that's a difficult thing. Paul certainly models this for us, and we can learn a lot from him. That confidence in death can only be found in one's reason for living. Calvary was the definitive blow that sealed the devil's fate. That's what gives us the confidence. When Jesus died on the cross, a cataclysmic thing happened. Satan was soundly and completely defeated. He was beaten beyond hope of recovery. And with this defeat came the defeat of sin and death. Christ's death and subsequent resurrection gives freedom to all of us that we so desperately needed. Sin and death became powerless over the one who responds to the will of God. And to the faithful Christian, victory is assured. And so, our rallying cry is not an either-or proposition. It's not give me liberty or give me death. It is give me liberty from death. Because the child of God has the blessing of eternal life. And death has no bearing over him. There's no fear in death. Death can be met with this cool confidence that Paul showed because of what awaits us as Christians. Now, do you remember... At the first of the year, right at the beginning of the year, we talked about two questions that every religion must answer. I'm sure you remember that sermon, right? Two questions that every religion must answer in order for someone to buy in. I don't think any logical or reasonable person is going to buy into a religion unless it can answer these two questions. And you may remember this. They were, what is life and what is death? Any religion has got to answer those questions, and they've got to answer them biblically, they've got to answer them soundly, right, before anyone that is logical or reasonable is going to buy in. So how a religion answers those two questions means everything, because there's no way you're going to become an adherent if you can't get sufficient answers for those questions. Even if the answers to us seem ridiculous, Nobody's going to buy in unless those two questions are answered. So some say, well, life and, and death, it's about karma. For some, it's about pilgrimage. It's about maintaining a scrupulous diet. Uh, for some, it's about doing more good than you do bad. You know, but most religions believe in some sort of form of an afterlife. Now, there are some folks who believe that, you know, you die, you become worm dirt, and that's it. But most people believe in some sort of afterlife. But these two questions must be answered effectively. Here's how Paul answers these two very important questions. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What is life? Christ. What is death? Well, it's gain. That's how Paul answers those two most important questions. And when you can answer those questions that way, I don't know about you, but I'm buying in. 
For to me to live is Christ. What is life? Christ. What is death? Gain. Paul had made it his goal to be as close to Jesus as possible. And you know what? You can't be any closer to Jesus than when you're dead. If you are a child of God, you will never be closer to Jesus than when you're by his side for all eternity. So for Paul, to live this life, to be like Christ, meant the ultimate reward is to be with him for all eternity. So when Paul's head was on the chopping block, Paul valued his faith in Jesus the most. To him, it was priceless. It was worth losing everything else, including his life. Here's something else to remember. Your confidence in going to heaven directly relates to how you live your life. What do you fill in the blank with? For to me, to live is blank. And if the answer is merely happiness or your job or money, you have every reason to be scared to death. Because your salvation is not secure. When you make life about anything other than Christ, at least Christ first and foremost, then there should be some trepidation. There should be an uneasiness. Because our only hope in being secure is in Jesus. When you fill that blank with Christ is when you realize that there is more to this life than career, possessions, those kind of things. Because guess what? When you leave this life, you leave the career, possessions, and all those things behind. The only thing you truly take with you is your soul. You better value that more than anything, right? I have read that there is a grave marker in a cemetery in Montgomery, Alabama that reads like this. It says, under the clover and under the trees, here lies the body of Jonathan Peace. Peace ain't here, only the pod. Peace shelled out and went home to God. (laughs) My friends, you will never be able to say to die is gain unless you first say for to me to live is Christ. You can't have one without the other. You will never be able to confidently say To die is gain if you don't start with to live is Christ. It all comes back to Jesus. You know, I asked you about your philosophy. The world has a philosophy. You know what the world's philosophy is. It is to live as self and to die as loss. You know, our world does everything it can to avoid death at all costs because death is the worst possible fate for a human being. But not for us, right? Not for those who are in Christ. For those who live a life in Christ, death is the best possible fate because it's a homecoming. It is our reward. And please, when I say that the world is separated between losers and winners, that doesn't mean that those who would be in the loser category are actually losers as individuals. God would want them in heaven as much as he wants us. It's just a mentality that's a losing mentality. It's not that they themselves are not valuable because they absolutely are. God wants them in heaven just as much as he wants us there too. We're just talking about those who are losing the battle and those who are winning the battle, right? What side are you on? You want to be on God's side, obviously. What is life? It is Christ, which equals winning. And what is, what is death? It's gain, which equals winning. So if you want to lose, you fill in the blank with anything other than Jesus. You know, I've had the opportunity to uh, many times be at the bedside of one who is passing away. They're under hospice care. They're about to leave this world. I've been by the bedside of individuals as family members prayed with them, sang with them. Although the the person was unresponsive for 
for maybe several days. I've actually seen situations where that person, before they passed, there would be like a faint smile on their face. And I always, I always wonder, what, what are they thinking? What's going through their mind? What are they seeing, right? I'd like to think that they are seeing everything come to fruition that they have sang about, that they have read about in Scripture. I'd like to think that. And I'm going to think that because you can't tell me different. What a beautiful thought that is. That all hope is realized in that moment as you pass over the threshold of eternity. You think about what your first day in heaven is going to be like. I think about that sometimes. You know, we have that picture hanging up in the lobby of the office. And, and it's entitled, first day, in, first day in Heaven. It's this woman grabbing Jesus and hugging him hysterically. I think about what my first day in heaven is going to be like. But then I also kind of stop myself and think, you know what? I, I, I've still got work to do here. God has kept me alive for a reason, right? He's kept you alive for a reason. There is a reason you're still here. You've got to figure out what that is. But I can tell you what it is. It's to glorify him. It's to live is Christ so that when you die, it's gain. For Paul, life began with Christ. Remember what he was known as before he became Paul? He was known as Saul, and then he had that encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and it changed everything. And we could rightly say that his life really began at that point. Yeah, I know he was alive physically before that, but his life really began when he obeyed the gospel. He became a proclaimer. His name wasn't the only thing that changed, right? But then also we see with Paul that to live as Christ meant that his life would end with Christ as well. A life lived for anything will end with you dying for whatever that thing was. And so to live for Christ means that you die with Christ as well. For Paul, a life lived for Jesus meant dying with Jesus. Paul wanted to be as close to him as he could possibly be, and certainly he would get that in eternity. And here's where our story intersects with Paul's story. Here's where the two meet. Paul was an unstoppable force. I mean, how, how do you stop a man like Paul? You can't. And we see that in Scripture. You can go ahead and kill him, but he'll die with a smile on his face. You can put him in prison, and he'll convert the guards. You know, you can stone him, and he'll take the brick, you know, the stones and, and make a church out of it. You can't stop a guy like Paul. He was unstoppable. When you're on fire for God... You're unstoppable. You think about it. Paul was finally put to death for his preaching and his teaching. And what are we doing? We're still talking about his teaching and preaching. An unstoppable warrior for God. But that shouldn't surprise us because we know that God is unstoppable. You can go back and you can read Isaiah chapter 40, for instance. God is above all, over all, in all, through all, ruler of all. He is unstoppable. God's love is unstoppable. Read Romans 8, 38 through 39 sometime. Christ is unstoppable. I mean, after all, he arose from the dead. The gospel is unstoppable. You see that in the book of Acts, right? The church grew under the most adverse of circumstances. The church never should have grown with what it was facing, the persecution and all that, and yet it continued to be a movement. The mission could not be thwarted. The first Christians could not be stopped, even by death and persecution. The church is unstoppable. Jesus said it. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. But there is a caveat to all this, isn't there? I mean, the church, the gospel, 
It can all stop with you. I mean, it can. Now, you're never going to thwart the efforts of God. But if you take what you have received, meaning that gracious gift of the gospel, and you choose not to share it, then the gospel can stop with you. You know, the church should be a movement, but it can stop with you. It can come to you, and you can say, yeah, I'm just going to sit in a pew. I'm going to be a pew potato, and I'm not going to do anything. So it can stop with you. Are you going to continue the fight? Are you going to continue to make this unstoppable force a reality to the world around us? Or are you going to allow the dead end to be with you? For to me to live is God, Jesus, the gospel, the church. We could put any of those or all of those into that that blank space. And they all equate to what? They all equate to winning. If we want to be winners, this is what it takes. You can fill in the blank with any of those or really all of those because they all go hand in hand and they all add up to winner. The sum of all of them is winner. You know, we've talked about this before, but you know, that that book of Revelation that's so scary and it's so doomy and gloomy and and we we get terrified reading through it should never terrify us. You know what the theme of Revelation is? We win. Actually, God wins, and we're on God's side, so we win too. It's a beautiful picture of victory, right? You know, when I first started coaching, and I thought that the, the goal was to win. When I started playing sports, I mean, that was the goal, right? Why play if you're not going to try to win? You know, I'd tell our kids when we'd enter a tournament, well, we're here, we might as well win it, right? I mean, that's the goal. The goal is to win. You've heard people say that. Well, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. But as I got a little older, I started realizing that winning isn't the only thing. In fact, winning is really kind of secondary to a bunch of other things. You can disagree with me on this, but being in the trenches, I've really kind of realized that. Because there were times when we would win a game and I would come home and still couldn't sleep. Because I knew we got lucky to win. I knew we didn't play well, but the other team was so bad, we were going to win no matter what. And as a coach, you know, don't listen to these guys on TV when they're trying to be humble or they're trying to skirt the issue. They know how good they are. They know if they've got a team that can compete to win it all or not. You know it as a coach. You know going into the season whether you're going to win a game or, or, or maybe you're not going to win any games or whether you're going to win the championship. You've got a pretty good idea. And so you come home and and you have trouble sleeping because you know that if we play like that, even though we won tonight, we're not going to win later on. You know the teams in your conference and you know you can't beat those teams playing like that. But then there are also times when you're able to go to sleep even after you've lost because you know you played extremely well, your team did awesome, and the other team hit a lucky shot at the buzzer or, you know, they shot 90% from the field. You're not going to beat a team playing like that, you know. You played well, you just didn't come out on the winning side. And you know that if you play that way the rest of the season, you're going to win more than you lose. But there's other things that come along that are bigger than winning, that really contribute to winning. When I first came to Court Charlotte, the kids couldn't understand. I would walk in the dressing room and there'd be one sock laying in the floor, otherwise it'd be immaculate. 
and I'd gather them all up and we'd run them. And we would run and run and run until, you know, they were sweaty and they were, they were exhausted. You know, Coach, what are we running for? You had a sock left out. Really, we're going to run over a sock? Yes, because details matter. Details matter. When you run, you touch that line. If you don't touch the line, we're going to keep running. Details, I think, are really important. Maybe I'm psychotic, but I think they're important. There's other things that are important, like how you play the game. Do you show character? Are you someone that's humble? Are you someone that shows yourself to be gracious in winning and in defeat? You know, there's a lot of things that factor in that are more important than winning that build your character. And when it comes to this spiritual battle that we're involved in, winning is everything. But it's also how you play the game. And the nice thing about it is, if you play the game the right way, you do win. The nice thing about it is we're on the best team that has ever been assembled. We've got the best coach you could ever ask for. And we've got a game plan that is written for us in the scriptures. If we execute that, we're more than conquerors. We don't just win. We are more than conquerors. Let's be a winning team. And we do that by filling in the blank with Christ. First and foremost, that's what we've got to be about. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you haven't been putting Christ in the blank, change that tonight. If something else has been pushing him out of that blank, then get that right tonight. If you have lived a life for something other than Christ, get that right tonight. Fix that tonight. Don't leave here without putting the right person in the blank. Caleb, why don't you come lead us in a song? If you have a need, come as we stand and as we sing.